Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we are here today with a very interesting movie. (laughs) We are taking a sharp left turn away from the movies I think we have been doing. Well, maybe not because Cam was really sexy, but this is sexy in a way different way, I think. I feel like this is like one of the one of the founding parents of sexy <laughs> in the horror movie genre. I don't disagree with you. You know, it's in the prime time. The 80s got weird and we're talking Hellraiser, baby. Ow, ow. I have seen Pinhead's face so many times i know a while ago you got that horror movie shirt yeah um with the masks on all of the horror characters and pinhead was on there and i had no idea that this was the kind of movie that i guess they were associated with you mean you you didn't think he was a bdsm demon i didn't (laughs) i did not i did not know that he was the personification of pain and pleasure Yes. So we're talking 1987, Clive Barker's Hellraiser, which has a lot of interesting things going on in it. It's a queer-coded horror movie. It's a movie with a lot of leather, with a lot of sex, with a lot of blood and guts to Elise's dismay. I am so sorry. (laughs) I did it. I made it. (laughs) But she made it through. And this one's pretty visceral, too. Like, they spare you no expense on the body horror and and stuff like that, right? Like, it's nuts. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. Very, very gooey. I have never seen a more gooey movie. It's very (laughs) sticky. So sticky. Yes. Yes. Very sticky. (laughs) So, as we do, we're going to provide some context just to, like, build the universe of what Hellraiser is and how it came to be. Because like Elise said, I think everyone knows Hellraiser from Pinhead, just this guy with a bunch of nails sticking out of his head and a very leather clad outfit. But that might not read as to what the hell's going on to like a magic box, to a weird marriage, to lots of weird sexy time. But we're here to get down with it. It's called Hellraiser, and it's based off of the director Clive Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart. But the studio said that that sounded a little too much like a romance and told him to change it. So I just thought this was so funny. He's like, well, how about sadomasochist from beyond the grave? Which I don't think would have gotten as far, but they shot that one Mm. down too. And then this was so funny. So he's like, just open the floor up to his production team. And he's like, what do you think this movie should be called? And this woman on the crew in her 60s offered up what a woman will do for a good fuck. Seriously, though, that is a title that would work very well. Like it's like it's like that game, like wrong descriptions or wrong titles. Like that absolutely could be one for this movie. So once we get into the plot, that'll be funny. But yeah, the whole theme of the movie centers on one of our main ladies, Julia, who is a disgruntled and frustrated housewife, and her kind of reliving the memories of a very intense sexual experience with her husband's brother. Mm. And what happens with him after he opens a very mysterious box that he buys that is said to unleash the greatest pleasures upon those that open it. But obviously, this is a horror movie, so that is not all of what happens. On talking about that, what falls advertising? (laughs) I mean, 
I mean, I feel like it's the perfect Pandora's box where it's like you get something and you get what you got in the other direction. The concept of said box is based on the urban legend of the devil's toy box, which I just think is funny because Elise and I watched urban legend together like a couple weeks ago. And we were all talking about like what urban legends are real and what ones sound like absolute bullshit. And this one kind of sounds like bullshit to me. But this urban legend goes on to say that there is a box that is a cube with six-sided mirrors all facing one another. And according to legend, individuals who open the structure will undergo a surreal, disturbing phenomenon that will simultaneously grant them a revelatory experience and permanently warp their mind. Yeah, that's, um, I can definitely see some connections between that legend and this movie. (laughs) I also saw, speaking of urban legend, the person who did the score for Hellraiser also did the score for urban legends. Really? Yeah. I I forget where I saw that, but I I saw that. I think I might've seen it in that interview I watched with Julia Higgins. I think that might've been mentioned, but I think they also did the music for one of the nightmare movies because that is something that this movie is kind of like riding the wave of is like, the Freddy Krueger type of horror villain. And I remember reading something really interesting saying how in this era, you expect horror villains to either be almost silly, like in the way that Freddy is very quippy and we haven't covered them yet, but like that's kind of how he is. He's very menacing in a joking manner or like silent deadly types like your Michael Myers or your Jason Voorhees. And something that Clive Barker said he wanted to do with his villains was like, I want my villains to be smart because being intelligent is terrifying when you know it's being used against you. And Mm. you can absolutely tell that just the way that some of the villains and the antagonists in this movie are speaking, like they know more than you and they know they know more than you and they're going to take advantage of that at every turn. And it's really interesting when talking about like just the power plays that this movie employs, I think. Should we get into it? Let's get into it. So we open up with some spooky, somber music that then it builds into sort of like a full orchestral opening. We love that. We love that. We're zooming out and we see an ancient looking box and a scene in sort of some nondescript tight corner of a city where somebody buys the box from some random guy. We don't really see him again. And... The random guy says, take it, it's yours. It always was, which I think is a very interesting prophetic line. Mm -hmm. The box is taken and we're still not sure who this character is at this point. He turns out to be a very central character to the story. Can I also say that this man has the dirtiest fingernails I have ever seen? (laughs) Like, I don't know if you noticed this man's hands. Oh, I I did. But like... This man not only has like nails that go far past his fingertips, but the entire white part is just black underneath. And like, wait, who is that? The person buying the box or selling the box? No, it's it's Frank. It's Frank's hands that oh. are taking the box. <laughs> and his, I, that's He's all gross. I could see was like this motherfucker's fingernails. Like, I'm sure he's breaking his nails down some women's backs because holy shit, these things are daggers. It's a turnoff. <laughs> <laughs> It's a turnoff for me. Anyway, it's the dirt. It's the dirt for me. (laughs) It's the absolute lack of any regard for hygiene for me. (laughs) Well, the next time we see him, he's super sweaty. So he's just at least keeping it consistent. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So sweaty. 
like the backs of his fingers are sweaty. Like it looks like he got misted down. He's so sweaty, but he's in a dark room upstairs in the, it looks like, I guess like the attic, which we later find out to be the attic of his family home. He is so sweaty. I did write that down. I was like, he's so sweaty question mark. (laughs) He is fiddling around with this box and he, we see him like moving it. A part pops up, settles back down. We get the sense that the box has been solved. Little blue lightning strikes shoot out. Then all of a sudden from all these different directions, fish hooks reach out and grip into his skin and start pulling it in all these different directions. Yeah, it's very much a saw trap very quickly. Yeah, and they are fish hooks too. It's not like they're like these industrial size. Like they literally look like it's something you could buy at the fucking Cabela's. Like just like reaching out (laughs) attached to these chains. And then, yeah, it kind of takes us into like a different room or like a different dimension, perhaps. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah, like you see hanging chains of hooks with like little flesh and innards kind of like hanging off of the hooks. And you see your first sighting of our Cenobites, who are our antagonists throughout this movie. There is a lady Cenobite, and she is credited as the female Cenobite. I've been calling her Lady C for short in my notes because (laughs) she makes a couple of appearances. But you can see her like searching throughout the room and like a puzzle is finding pieces of this man's face and putting them back together on the floor. (laughs) While Pinhead, our titular image that we all know from Hellraiser with the nail sticking out of his head, which tiny dicks. Oh, shit. So many dicks. It's so, so many, many. Okay. So many dicks. But he recovers the box and you could tell that the box is something that they want. They want that box in their possession. And he slides it together and they disappear and the attic becomes completely empty. But yeah, in terms of like what they look like, I saw that the director, Clive Barker, was talking to a costume designer and the costume designer reported that the notes that she got from Clive Barker were to make a series of costumes for four to five magnificent super butchers. The qualifications were to have areas of revealed flesh where some kind of torture has or is actively occurring, something with butchery involved. And what Clive Barker calls, quote unquote, repulsive glamour. Wow. What a homework assignment. Yeah. Clive Barker goes on to say that a lot of the Cenobites' images were taken from his visits to various S&M clubs in his visits mm. to Amsterdam. And Clive Barker is mm. an openly gay man. So I feel as though that's important context into the discussion that we're going to have afterwards and what he was thinking about when he was just thinking about the themes of the movie and everything like that. But yeah, they're all decked out in leather. The lady Cenobite kind of has one continuous wire going through her one cheek, through her mouth, and then out the side of her other cheek. Like it's almost like an inverse halo is what I wrote down. Mm, mm -hmm. Because instead of over her head, it's through her face. She's bald, like she's not sexualized. And that's the thing too. Like you're not seeing them in like jock straps and bras and panties. Like they look like leather butchers. Business professional leather. Yes. <laughs> Business professional daddies and mommies. Yes. I'd say that's the best way to go about it. Yeah, she has that wound in her throat that's being sort of pried open by the wires that go th- kind of like through her face and around her head. When I read about her, she had the nickname Deep Throat. Oh. Um, in addition to Lady Lady Cenobite, which I think has to do with that wound that we see her with. 
so a vaginal like slit in her throat is mm-hmm. what we're what we're taking out of this. So yeah, a lot of lot of imagery here, a lot of right off the bat, just lots of blood, guts, restraint, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, they presumably killed this man who we later find out his name is Frank, kill him and then disband and the house is left empty. And the next scene we see is of two new people entering the house. So we have a couple, they move into an old family home and we kind of get that sense based on the dialogue that the husband has as soon as he walks in, you know, it's been a while, here we are, blah, blah, blah. They take a walk around the house. We can see that it has not been lived in for a while. I believe they say about 10 years. And it's definitely unsettling, very dusty, dirty. There are large religious statues uh, spread here and there in the house. And of course, we know, you know, that this is going to be the scene of a lot of some crazy shit in the movie as horror movies go. So, you know, we're just kind of like bracing ourselves for that. And we can see right away that there are some marriage troubles between Julia, who ends up being one of our primary women, and her husband, Larry. They both kind of split up. Larry goes to explore the rest of the downstairs. Julia goes upstairs. Larry finds that the kitchen has some old food in the sink, dishes strewn about. There are maggots and flies, which obviously wouldn't be there if it had been 10 years since someone was last in the house. But just as he notices this, Julia calls for him from upstairs. He joins her there. There's a mattress upstairs as if somebody had been squatting there. But they quickly decide that it is probably Larry's brother, Frank, who I guess they haven't seen for a while, but he must be staying there because this would be, you know, his old family home as well. Yeah. And you get the sense that Larry and Frank do not have the best relationship. He goes on to say that like, oh, he's probably pulled one of his disappearing tricks again. So Frank seems like a guy who kind of like enters like a hurricane and then leaves and you don't hear from him for a while. And he even says like, oh, he's probably behind bars someplace. So you can already tell that like, it's not that Frank is necessarily just a flighty kind of guy, but it's it's a little deviant by nature. But I did Mm. take note that, Julia, upon mention of Frank, her face kind of lights up. Like, otherwise, Mm. she's very stern throughout this conversation. You can tell she's very reluctant to be there. She's like, oh, well, it's no Brooklyn. So you can tell that she's feeling a little resentment having to move out to this area of the country because Larry got a good new job. And even Larry goes on to say, like, you know, we can be happy here. So they have issues that stem a lot further back than just the move. There's a lot of contention there. But Julia is played by Claire Higgins. She's an English actress that has been featured in various films and some theater roles. And she's got like a red mohawk thing kind of going on like at first it just kind of looks like a regular like 80s teased haircut but throughout the film I feel like her hair gets redder and I feel like it turns more like deviantly styled or like I don't know see that like it just gets sharper like she just goes from looking kind of like a housewife with a lot of curly hair that kind of you know just is back to something that's a little bit more like slicked back and intentional We don't necessarily know her profession or if she has one, but she seems like very businesslike, very even and cold, just a very dry demeanor, I would say. Or Cinta Larry, who seems a lot more expressive and like golden retriever husband kind Mm, of guy. mm -hmm. 
So right after the discovery of Frank's mattress is made, the phone rings downstairs. Larry goes downstairs and it's his daughter, Kirsty, from a previous marriage. She's, what is she like, out of college? Is she out of college? She's like 22. I think that's a perfect assessment. So since Larry leaves, Julia is alone in that room upstairs to kind of snoop around and she finds this tin box and looks through it. And there are all of these erotic, like amateur, like pornographic photos that feature Frank, who we realize is the same man that we saw in the introduction who had previously opened that box and other women. So she doesn't seem disturbed by these at all. She seems very interested in these images. She seems very sort of, I guess, titillated by these images. And shortly after Larry kind of calls her name, she goes downstairs. He asks her what she thinks about the move. And she says, why not? (laughs) So I guess just show me some pictures, give me a good time and let me know Frank might be around and I'll be there. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. So the next scene we see is move-in day. They're moving in. Larry is helping a bunch of movers try to get a mattress up the stairs. And let me just say, how heavy is this fucking mattress that three grown-ass men can't push this thing up a flight of stairs? Like, (laughs) I don't understand. Like, I have moved every year of my life since I was 18. These men, we're talking about 80s mattresses, okay? They're the thickness of two-ply toilet paper. I don't understand why these three men are so fucking hung up trying to get this mattress up a flight of stairs. I get like the whole pivot thing. I rest my case. Anyway, it kind of leads to one of my favorite exchanges of the movie where these men, you could tell they're a little misogynistic. They think Julia is attractive. And in the middle of trying to get the bed of the stairs, the movers stop and they turn to Julia, who's just entered the room from the kitchen is like, you got any beer? And Julia just kind of cocks his head at them and is like, yeah, there's beer in the fridge. And then pushes past them to go upstairs (laughs) to leave Larry there to sneer at her. And he's like, oh, I'm not doing anything else. Like, I got nothing else better to do. Let me go get the beer. But just the presumption that she was going to serve them alcohol or just serve them generally in the middle of their move. And she's just like, "Mm, no, and just kind of pushes past them to go upstairs to return to the attic. I just thought that was yes, I love it. And whereas you were, you know, focusing on the mattress, I was focusing on the move. This house is not move in ready. That's all I have to say. It is not move in ready. It's like, can you at least give it a good like dusting? (sighs) Okay. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. So, okay. So at this point we're seeing Kirsty. She's walking along the water's edge. She's walking somewhere. Later, we realize she's walking to the house to visit her dad and Julia. Also, let me say that all of the buildings are very pointy and erect. Oh. Like, that's just, like, I literally wrote down what city is this. Never found out. I didn't look it up. But she's walking underneath all of these buildings, and they all kind of are converging Eiffel Tower style, where they just Mm. kind of look like big dicks in the sky. But I just wanted to point that out because I was looking for dicks at, at every turn in this movie. And you can find them if you're looking for them. I read that this was originally supposed to take place in London, but then to make it more appealing to American audiences, they just made the city more nondescript. So I don't even think there is. Okay, that makes sense for why Julia's accent is all over the goddamn place in this movie, because sometimes she Mm. has an English accent and sometimes she doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we have it. So anyway, Chrissy finally arrives at the house. She says hi to her dad. They kiss on the lips, which I don't know about that. (laughs) 
But anyway, she's at the house. And so she's, you know, eventually going to play kind of a role while she visits. Julia is now upstairs because she had blown past the moving men. She is looking at one of those pictures she found in Frank's belongings. And she starts having flashbacks from an experience that she had had with Frank. And now this starts to fill in some of the context that we know at this point is coming. Because like she said, the way that Julia responds like physically, you know, with her facial expressions, her body language, every time Frank had been brought up. And we realized that they had had an affair maybe a night or two before she had gotten married to Larry. And she is fantasizing about him. Yeah. And we don't really get a lot of hints of what Larry and Julia's, you know, romantic or sexual relationship was in comparison. But you can tell just through Frank's presence that he is offering something that is not nearly as um, straightforward or vanilla as perhaps what she's used to. He enters the house, says he's like in town for the way. And this is in flashback. Enters the house, says he's in town for the wedding. He's dripping wet. You can see his chest hair through his like wet t-shirt, which, you know, very sexual. I like that while these scenes are going on, it's intercut with Kirstie trying to get a glass of water from the faucet and the faucet explodes. <laughs> so, oh my God, I did not even make that connection. <laughs> like it's intercut with... Literally, Kirsty trying to suppress all of this spraying water from spouting straight up at her face in the kitchen. So it's like, what else could that be? I don't know. I'll leave that to your imagination. But it's a very wet scene. Essentially, she gets him a drink. He's very aggressive, says, am I going to be allowed to kiss the bride? And it's just very aggressive with their first sexual encounter. Kisses her very hard, slices her clothes off with a switchblade, very hard grabs at her breasts and her wrists to like restrain her, but she she is into it. Lots of hard fucking and after the session, begging him to stay with her. And this is also intercut with flashes of Julia being aroused in the present. She's kind of like moaning and panting a little bit and, and shuddering in a sense. But it's also intercut with Larry grunting, trying to get the mattress up the stairs. And then eventually him slicing his hand open on a exposed nail that is stuck out of the banister. Like Elise said, not move in ready. This house has not been inspected. <laughs> nope. they this wait. is not up to code. No. <laughs> not they even wait. for the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Julia and Larry waived inspection on this house before moving in, which haven't we all in this market, but it's his family home. So I guess they didn't even have to buy it. Anyway, this is all intercut with that scene. So gets a little bloody. This scene is actually something that I want to bring up later. I've read a really cool analysis of the juxtaposition of this scene, but Julia is then interrupted by Larry, just kind of holding his hand out like a wounded kid, kind of like, I hurt myself. And he's like bleeding all over the damn place. So like him, instead of walking to the kitchen, guys <laughs> right there to wash his hand off, drags his bloody ass hand through the house, up the stairs. Blood is dripping everywhere just so he can like hold it in front of her and be like, uh, I'm going to pass out. It hurts. Like she does take sympathy on him though, but you can tell it's kind of like reluctantly kind of like almost you're right. Like he does kind of, give off the impression of being kind of like a young boy. Julia gives off this impression of being an exacerbated mother who's just like, just stop messing up. Like, give me a second. (laughs) 
but she does clean up his wound for him, but not after, like she said, all of this blood gets on the floor. And shortly after that scene concludes and, you know, move in day one is over and Julia and Larry go to bed. We start seeing the blood that had been dropped on the floor being sucked up into the floorboards. Like how did nobody notice that? But that's okay. Yeah. No one one came to clean up the blood on aisle two. Like they're just like, yeah. That's not going to be the hill I die on. There are so many other things. I'm just trying to be, (laughs) I'm just trying to be like open-minded about what's going on. (laughs) I was about to say, before we started recording, Elise said like everything about this movie is so gooey and this scene of reanimation. Do you want it to? (laughs) No, I think you should do it. Well, uh, it's just like. Okay, so first it starts, I will say, I don't like the way it starts. I think it starts a little hokey. It starts, blood gets sucked up into the floor, which is fine. But then, just like some Edgar Allan Poe shit, the floorboards start getting all weird and gassy and green. And then, and then something starts to come out of the floorboards. Okay, so fine. So then, at first, it looks like two, like, stubs that just kind of come out. <laughs> Like little like bug antenna. But then you realize as the reanimation continues, their arms and they start growing fingers. And then there starts becoming a rib cage and then a brain grows. And the whole time there's like a, there's just <laughs> this, 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 this puddle of like <laughs> sticky, like gooey, like bodily fluids. Like, I guess, as you would imagine, in decomposition, those those bodily fluids would, would go out. They're coming back. All of it's coming back. You can tell that the way that they shot it was they had all of these things put together, and then they just melted it, and they played it backwards. Like, that's exactly how, they, how it looks. It just kind of looks like this brain forming after having been melted from the top. It's a very gooey exoskeleton, where it's like, it's got the minimal organs but it's a very weird humanoid creature just hoisting itself out mm. of the depths of the floor. And like, I don't know, to me, I feel like the attic, I was thinking about this, about why the attic. And I understand that's where Frank like did his little ritual, but it's almost like, I'm thinking of like poltergeist where like shit's coming from the ground floor from like the basement. Cause it's like, what's under, I want to know structurally what's underneath of this <laughs> I want to know what's going on on the ceiling of the floor below this attic. Yeah, especially in a house like that. That shit's coming through the ceiling on the floor below. Yeah, there's going to be a drippage. There's going to be some some stuff going on. But yes, this humanoid creature screams and then it cuts to a dinner scene. So Julia and Larry are hosting a dinner and I do not know who these people are. I don't find out who these people are. The lack of context clues as to who the fuck these people are. (laughs) We don't know who these people are. And it gets confusing. And I'll tell you why. It gets confusing (laughs) because Kirstie is making eyes with this cigarette flipping guy named Steve from across the table. He's being very overtly sexual and flirtatious. Kirstie's into it. She's into it. She's ready to go. She's happy. This guy, Steve, is pouring her brandies just like, Oh, like, stop, stop. I I can't drink that much. I'm not going to be able to stand up. And he's like, so lie down in front of her fucking dad. No shame. (laughs) No shame. Like, what the fuck? But you can tell that Julia has had enough of this evening. She's not into it. She's bored. 
whatever. She very abruptly stands up while Larry is telling the story of him getting stitches at the hospital from his little nail extravaganza. She just very curtly and very like lifelessly just kind of is like, I'm going to bed. So then people like seem like they're going to make their way out, but Larry insists they stay. But you could tell Larry's like really heartbroken that like Julia just kind of like won't play ball for him. Just like won't be a housewife, Mm -hmm. won't entertain. She returns to the attic because she's hearing some noises. You could tell that she's being like pulled toward that attic for some reason. Yeah. And she gets into the attic. And this is, you know, where Frank's stuff had been previously. I think that they cleared it out. Yeah. So she's in there thinking about Frank, her beloved. And all of a sudden, that zombie thing that we saw earlier grabs Julia's leg. Of course, she freaks out. But we know it's Frank. And eventually, kind of, he's like, you know who I am. You know who I am. And she says, Frank? And so she realizes. And she stops being scared. I mean, she's still scared. But not as scared. Because she knows it's Frank. Intercut with this... Kirstie is drunk looking for the bathroom. It's intercut with her trying to find the bathroom with Frank kind of explaining what is going on. Is this where he kind of explains that like the blood brought me back? He's like a couple drops. This is how far it got me. Imagine what more blood could do. So Kirstie runs into Julia on the stairs and you can tell that Julia like perhaps is thinking about nabbing Kirstie in that moment. But Steve instead... (laughs) interrupts and is like, hey, are you ready for me to walk you home? And she's like, yes. So Kirstie and Steve walk off into the night. And this is where I get fucking confused. Okay, this dialogue is what confuses me because (laughs) Kirstie's talking shit on Julia because through dialogue earlier, we find out that Julia is indeed Kirstie's stepmother. So this is Larry's second wife and his first wife is dead. We don't find out how, like it's, it's very kind of just like said in passing, but Julia and Kirstie don't have the best relationship. And Steve is like, oh, come on. We're not all that frigid. So then I'm like, who's we? Are you related to- Oh, damn. Yeah, I'm like, are you related to Julia? Or are you like also British? Like what is- And if so, why are you here? Like, I don't understand who this guy is. Obviously, it's okay for them to be romantically involved because then they just start kissing- in the middle of the street while a very suspicious bearded man who looks like a deranged Hagrid is like staring at them from afar. (laughs) And you could tell that he might be like an antagonist later, but they like start kissing and they, you know, you you see them in bed together later. And I'm like, who's we, are you related to Julia? Cause she said bye dear and kissed him on the cheek and walked upstairs. I'm like, are you Julia's other son? Is this like step bros, step sis going on? I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that. I feel like that might track with a movie like this that has a lot of different sort of sexual relationships and situations going on. But I'm not sure. I did not catch that. And I don't think he sounded British. No, I don't think so either. Okay, I Googled it and apparently he's just a neighbor who was a love interest. But like, who's the we? Other people, love interests. We're not all that bad. Yeah. So, Kirsty left the party with Steve. They kiss under the streetlights. Weird man. You said deranged Hagrid sees them. Kind of ignored. We don't pay attention to him much after that scene. Well, for now. But then they go home together in Kirsty's room, but they sleep in separate beds. Back at the house. Julia's in bed with Larry. Yes. And she's, of course, thinking about the request that Frank has made of her to bring her more blood. We see her become more resolved in her expression. She goes upstairs and she tells Frank that she'll do it. 
So she's in. She's going to bring him some bodies. He's going to eat him up. Yes. This is just makes Julia's character like that much more interesting for me, where it's like, I'm just so interested because I want to know what the length of time between them having the affair before the wedding night where they quite literally fuck on top of her wedding dress that she's about to wear iconic for Larry the next day. And like this encounter is like, I want to know how many years it's been because I need to know how fed up I need to be with fucking Larry to be ready to say, you know what? Murder's okay with me because (laughs) you just lay it down that good. You know, or Larry lays it down that bad. So Mm. it's like, (laughs) and granted, like there's a lot of things between Julia and Larry that you can tell are riding that line between this is a dom sub relationship and this is Mm. a exploitative, manipulative, toxic relationship. And I think part of the horror movie is trying to like ride that line by creating a semblance between like dominant and submissive, but also like emotionally manipulative and emotionally vulnerable. So like, I I just, I need Julia's origin story because I know it's a movie and I know it's meant to be like whatever, but I feel like she was goaded into that a little too easily for my liking, Mm -hmm. but that's just me. I have um, a bit of an interview that I found on YouTube, and I feel like that kind of feeds into what you said pretty well. So this is a quote from Claire Higgins from an interview in 1987, where she's being asked questions about her character, Julia. And she says, I hope you see her reasons for being an unpleasant, cold character at the beginning, because hopefully you see why she's like that, how she came to be like that, and the depths that she's prepared to plumb for love. The reaction I've had from the people on the set, for instance, After the killings, I mean, nobody would speak to me, but it was because a woman was doing it, basically. And I think that all the women in the audience will be going, absolutely, yes. And the men may be um, locking up their tool sheds. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Sorry, that's my cat. (laughs) He's like, yeah. (laughs) He was like, I'm a boy, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little boy. (laughs) But I thought that was interesting. It seems like, you know, Claire Higgins is really trying to identify with her character and act with Julia's, I guess, like struggles and frustrations in mind. Because yeah, like I think the movie does frame her as sympathetic, at least in the beginning. And then as the movie progresses, it might become a little bit more difficult to connect with her. But I love that line. The women in the audience will be going, absolutely, yes. (laughs) Like seeing her kind of take that autonomy and I guess take those steps towards gaining control back over her sexuality. But yeah, and I think it's good that they didn't make Larry more unlikable because Larry, he's an idiot, but he's by all accounts, very responsive partner and present and respectful. And that's where it's like, I can't tell whether this is her taking agency back of her sexuality or her having been in an exploitative or abusive situation and her being like gaslit or manipulated because of a lack of self-esteem or whatever it be. Like she's just used to more like toxic habits or she's just been on the straight and narrow for so long that you get that like bite of something super exciting and you don't think you can get that except if you partake in these things that like aren't you again, you know, it's just like the height of pleasure, I guess. I don't know. 
it's interesting. Like her psyche and her character is just like very interesting because you are seeing the movie like through her perspective. It's not necessarily that like we're seeing things through Kiersey's perspective. It's through Julia's perspective in the sense that like we're supposed to be attracted to Frank. We see that he's flawed, but like we see him in a very, he is it light. And Larry's just kind of like this dweeb, you know? I hate Frank. (laughs) I do not find him attractive. I have a quote about that, actually. Okay. Okay. So it's talking about like subversion. So this is from an article called Hellraiser is an unbeatable LGBTQ franchise by Fraser McDonald. What Hellraiser is interested in is subversion, most notably of the horror genre's treatment of its female characters as an extension of the male psyche. In horror movies, women are either boyish in nature, like Halloween's Laurie Strode, or are a representation of the author's sexual desire. They may dress in a more masculine way or have names that are typically associated with men or more commonly be promiscuous or very willing to bear themselves in front of the film's male character. Instead of the women, men are the focal point of the Hellraiser films, both as manifestations of horror. Very few people will forget seeing Frank Cotton's bloody, half-revived body and sexual objects. Julia is both the antagonist and the protagonist in as much as the film is more about her sexual gratification than anyone else's. She wants to bring Frank back from the dead in order to get the kind of pleasure she will never get from Larry, her husband, and Frank's brother. We see Frank through her eyes as someone with a lot of sex appeal. So it's interesting in the sense that like, even the way that Julia's costumed, like I said before, her hair is almost like a mullet, but she's always, again, she's business. She's not business mommy or daddy quite yet, but she's always in like this white bun up with like a black skirt or like a black slacks. Like we don't read her as overtly feminine unless she's in the presence of Frank. Like it's that's a good point. Only in the scenes with Frank that we see her in a bra or in lingerie or in a something in like what's like a lingerie dress, like with a slip. Like yeah. yeah, like or in something like that. But when she's in front of Larry, like she almost looks butch. I think that's where her Englishness comes in as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because I think English people kind of have a reputation of in public at least having more of a grasp on sort of propriety. And I think we see that definitely with Julia, but I think that it works, especially for this because of the characterization that you just mentioned. It kind of helps create that contradiction between what we are seeing of her with Larry and what we are seeing of her with Frank. Yes. After Julia agrees to help Frank by bringing more blood so that he can reanimate back to a more human form, we see Kirsty is having a bad dream. It's pretty obvious the dream sequence just by the way that it's lit. You see a lot of pillow feathers hanging in the air. And in her dream, she approaches a bed that has a person in it with a white sheet over them. So presumably a dead person. There is a baby crying. So at first I thought like, oh, like did her mom die in childbirth or something like that? Like that was my first reading of that. There's candles surrounding the bed. It looks a little like Rosemary's baby to me a little bit. And you see that under the white sheet, blood begins to pool and spread throughout the body. The baby crying gets louder. And then a very dead Larry sits up in bed, very grotesque looking. And then Kirstie is woken up by Steve 
from her nightmare. But Kiersey calls her dad just to make sure that he's okay. And just by the way, he answers the phone and how reassuring he is. I feel like this is something that's happened before. It's not perhaps not the first time that she's had this kind of nightmare. It's like, I just need to call, you know, see that you're okay here, that you're okay. And he reassures her he is okay. And then once Larry gets off the phone, you see that Frank has snuck down the stairs and murmurs, Kirsty in a very weird, a little too excited voice. So that foreshadows some stuff that goes on a little bit later. But you could tell that Frank is kind of setting his sights on Kirsty. So the next day, Julia gets all dolled up and she goes out. She's sitting at a bar by herself having a drink. A gentleman begins to talk to her and she invites him back to the house. So I guess we're assuming this is while Larry is at work. She's home and this is who we can assume to be her first sacrifice. So she brings him home and there are a couple of parts where it seems like she's getting cold feet, but there is sort of this moment where I think she feels a little vindicated in her decision to bring him back to this dangerous situation because he does start acting like a dick. And I think that that's kind of when we see her be like, all right, let's go upstairs. So she brings him upstairs into the attic. This man sees no red flags about being in this room I mean, there are some like vague smudges everywhere. It's dark. It's musty. There are literal cobwebs on the back of the door. It's just like an awful room. So after a couple minutes of being in there, Julia finally works up the strength to grab the hammer off the wall and she strikes him a couple times with the hammer and Frank comes out and he's able to, I guess, like suck up this man's blood. And once again, he's saying, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Yeah, something else I noticed about her exchange with this man is you can tell that when Julia brings him through the threshold of the front door that she is like second guessing her decision and like very anxious, very unsure of herself, kind of rebuffing his advances. And I did read it too, that she felt vindicated because he gets very aggressive. He's like, you're not going to change your mind now, are you? Like, But I also took it as she got calm Because that's what she responds to, like with Frank. At the beginning, this guy's like kissing her neck and being like, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, blah, 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 blah. And she's just kind of like super duper uncomfortable. But when he tries to dominate her, she kind of just like perks up and is like, okay, let's go upstairs. She's more comfortable being brutalized and being like dominated than she is leading a mutual power exchange. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's you know, I, I thought that was interesting. I we also do see that with Larry later, which I think we can talk about. But I also think that in addition to kind of responding to that from Frank, we see at least like a moment where that same energy is coming from Larry that she responds to. While Frank is descending upon this dude, she looks like really into it and really happy about it. And then the second that she leaves the room, she kind of like has a panic attack about it. So this is where you can tell that she's being coerced to an extent because she is not comfortable. She is not stating her boundaries. She is not saying like, hey, this is something I'm uncomfortable with. She doesn't feel comfortable saying no, even though it's something she previously consented to. In looking at this situation as an allegory for like, like a sexual encounter where there is a power disbalance, you could tell that her and Frank don't have a proper BDSM dom sub relationship because it is not rooted in mutual respect and care and aftercare. Like none of that is present because 
Julia is obviously being pushed past her limits to help revive him, which she believes is going to be a means to an end so they can be together because she loves him. But it's very obvious that Frank does not love her because of his Kirstie comments and because of the way that he's comfortable manipulating her. So obviously, like, this movie is not meant to be a guidebook to what BDSM relationships should look like. But I just thought that was important to bring up in the sense of, like, if we're looking at this as a metaphor... She is too afraid to withdraw consent at this point because of the power that Frank is exerting over her. And you can tell that she has an expectation, though, because once she kind of washes the blood off of her and collects herself, she re-enters the room in a black lace lingerie set, like a black slip. Like she's not wearing her like power suit. She's like ready to fuck, but he's not ready yet. He does not have skin on his bones yet. He has muscles and like, nerves and veins and you could tell that his face has a more like filled shape but he kind of looks like a biology dummy like the kind of like diagrams you see in like a biology or an anatomy textbook where it's just like devoid of skin but everything else like that's what he looks like he's like my i just had like this big flashback when i was in the third grade my teacher had this dummy just like you said named (laughs) mergy And Frank looks exactly like Mergy. Oh, no. Oh, my God. That was such a good class. Sometimes my teacher would take, like, Mergy's body parts, like his lungs, and, like, hide them in your desk. And it was such a cool day when you found Mergy's lungs in your desk. But I didn't feel that way watching this movie. Frank, I don't have happy thoughts about Frank like I did about Mergy. I was about to say, did (laughs) did Mergy, like, grab your... (laughs) shoulder no. and say come to daddy because that's no. what that's what frank does <laughs> daddy that made me laugh i did laugh at that he puts his fingers in her mouth there's a lot of fingers oh, in the mouth i hate that 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 was one of the worst parts of the movie his fingers his skinless fingers that are basically just like active wounds and he just like puts them in her mouth and think about his fingernails from the beginning of the movie <laughs> <laughs> At least, like, that, that's the one solace that's the one saving grace there's no fingernails on these hands yeah i guess you're right like i guess maybe like his skinless fingers are more sanitary than whatever the fuck was under there <laughs> in the beginning of the movie but i hated that yeah just as she's about to go suck his fingers larry comes home <laughs> damn 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 kind of breaks up there a little affair and you could tell that frank is very displeased that Even though Julia doesn't seem to respect Larry, she is still kind of putting up house for Larry over her little escapades into the attic with Mergy Frank. (laughs) Mergy. So kind of intercut with this, Kirsty is at work. I guess she works at like a pet store in the city. The weirdest exotic pet store I've ever fucking seen. Yeah, there's a lot of different pets in there. There's a lot of different pets, a lot of birds, a lot of lizards. And she's helping some woman with whatever this woman needs. And she notices somebody standing by, I guess, the cricket cage. And she goes over, because from the back, we can tell immediately he looks like that creepy guy, that haggard looking fellow that her and Steve had seen earlier in the movie. And he turns around, looks at her straight in the fucking face with a fistful of crickets in his hand that he has been eating right out of the cage. So she tells him to get out. He eventually gets to the doorway right as, does Steve come in? Yes. 
I'm over Steve. Steve is always showing up right at the right minute and he never knows what the fuck is going on. So he comes in, he's like, what's up? And just in the second it took her to look away from the door, that man is gone. So after that weird scene and we're seeing this fellow appearing and, you know, again, thinking maybe he'll have something to do with something later, we're back at the house and, oh wait, I skipped a part. That happens after Julia literally lifts up the entire dead body that just got the life sucked out of him and moves it into another room. Yeah, I completely <laughs> forgot because that scene operates to show that this man is still alive and well and kind of stalking Christy and we don't know Kirstie and we don't know exactly who he is. But after she's done sucking on Frank's fingers, she lifts the dead body, puts it in a spare bedroom and then hides in the bathroom where Larry has the weirdest line delivery of the movie, I think, because <laughs> he's like, where are you? Where are you? You want a cookie, little girl? What the fuck was that <laughs> line? Holds a fucking Trisket or the weird thing, the cookie that you get on a fucking airplane. Like, that's what he holds up. It's like, you want a cookie, little girl? Like, I don't know what that's supposed to be. Larry is just so goddamn awkward. There's something about his mouth that, like, just really bothers me. It's his <laughs> eyes for me. Like, they're just a little too okay. buggy. But, like, she fakes sick while cleaning all of the blood off of her. And we get another, a montage. I don't know if it's the next day or the same week bringing another man home mm-hmm. and you could tell her look is getting more severe she's got a red lip red nails red hair white shirt edgy black triangle earrings like she's mm-hmm. looking a lot more composed and in with it ready to help frank the guy gets got again <laughs> frank is still bloody even though I don't think he's eating these people for all they're worth because there's still a lot of like things left afterwards. But Frank is still- Interesting theory. Interesting theory though. Yeah. I could see him doing something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I think we both know what he eventually wants to do. Mm -hmm. Finally, we get some exposition because I realize now that Julia has not asked any questions of Frank as to why he's in the predicament that he's in. Like, at no point is it like, how this happened to you, Frank? Tell me, lover. No, it's just like, oh, you want me to just go kill somebody so you can come back up from the floor in which you came? No problem, baby. I got it. But like, (laughs) finally, he shows Julia the box. So in explaining the box, Frank says that he was seeking the ultimate erotic experience and that the Cenobites gave an experience beyond the limits with pain and pleasure indivisible. (laughs) Under God, indivisible, <laughs> with liberty and justice for no one. Because Frank is hanging upside down, bloody, <laughs> filleted with hooks, and he is pulled apart in a little flashback. So you kind of get a little death scene for Frankie Pooh. Yeah, after that, I just wrote, insert some dumbass Bonnie and Clyde dialogue between Julia and Frank, where it's like, we're going to run away and the Cenobites aren't going to be able to catch us. They'll never mm-hmm. know because it's obviously set up that the Cenobites do not know that Frank is being revived. And that is an important part of plot that comes back a little bit later. But at this point in the movie, I noted that Julia is in it now. She does not seem coerced. She is now like inspelled and under the trance of what Frank is asking her to do and the future they may have together. And at this time, let's do a little etymology with the word Cenobite. 
This is from Wikipedia. The English words cenobite and cenobitic are derived via Latin from Greek words. The adjective can also be cenobaic or cenobitic. A group of monks living in community is often referred to as a cenobium. Cenobitic masochism is a monastic tradition that stresses community life. Often in the West, the community belongs to a religious order, and the life of the Cenobitic monk is regulated by a religious rule, a collection of precepts. The older style of monasticism to live as a hermit is called eremitic, a third form of monasticism. <laughs> wow, this is so hard. <laughs> Found primarily in Eastern Christianity is the skeet. So interesting religious ties here. And it is interesting considering all of the religious figures and the symbolism in terms of like all the statues from the beginning. And even the first time Kirsty comes up to the house, the first thing that she looks at is that all of the Jesus statues are on the curb that presumably Julia has put to the curb. So you could tell that Clive Barker is definitely creating an inverse of perhaps Christianity or Catholicism by making these BDSM sex demons part of this Cenobite linguistic adventure. So it is nighttime. This is after the Bonnie and Clyde dialogue. Larry and Julia are downstairs, I think watching a movie. They're just chilling. All of a sudden they hear noise upstairs and Larry gets up to inspect. But of course, Julia knows what those noises are and she does not want him to get up and inspect. And also Frankie upstairs is definitely making those noises on purpose. He's being so loud and such a dick. So Larry gets up to inspect Julia, whatever she does, she cannot get him to sit back down. She says she'll take care of it. He won't listen. She tries to seduce him because she's thinking, oh, if I can distract him with my sexual prowess, he still doesn't listen. They're finally at the doorway. And I guess Larry does look in the attic upstairs, but nothing happens. But he leaves the door open and they go back downstairs and into the bedroom to kind of finish what was initiated to kind of like act on that sexual energy. And as they're in the bedroom, Julia sees Frank come out of the bedroom closet. So he has left the upstairs room. This is like the first time I think we see him leave that place. So he's clearly getting stronger. She starts getting upset. She's saying, no, 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 no. Of course, Larry thinks that has something to do with him. And then he gets upset with Julia because he's like, one second, you can't keep your hands off me. The next second, you know, you're telling me no, get off of you. I don't know what you want. I don't know what's going on. And we see, you know, some of that frustration, a lot of that frustration, I think that we've seen her experiencing from, I think like from other characters in the movie, but it kind of like, I guess, out of character for Larry, at least for us and what we've seen, but who knows? Maybe that's, you know, something that has happened before. Yeah. And you can tell that Frank was making those noises because he wants to kill Larry off. As Larry is on top of Julia and trying to have sex with her, Frank approaches. He slices a rat in half with oh, his... how could I forget? <laughs> with his switchblade. And you could tell that Frank would like to kill Larry in that moment. But Julia saying, no, please, I can't bear it is... Her still protecting Larry and Frank doesn't like that very much, but I didn't know how to read the rat because a rat is kind of like long and phallic looking and he's slicing it in half. I was like trying to read into that. Like what do rats represent? I mean, you see rats kind of like throughout the movie skittering about Frank's attic and shit like that. But yes, Frank recedes and Larry lives to see another day. 
even though he leaves that scene feeling very rejected and confused. And you do feel mm-hmm. bad for Larry because like as much of a dweeb he is, <laughs> you could tell that he just does not know how to reach his wife anymore. Like he does not know what to do. And that's kind of confirmed through a daddy daughter dinner that he is having with Kirsty. He's explaining that I don't know what's going on with her. Julia won't leave the house. This is where he asks Kirsty, can you just stop by and like make friends with her? Because I think she just might be lonely and just needs somebody to talk to that's not me. And Kirsty's like, okay, I'll do that for you. Yeah. So the next day, Kirsty acts on that. She walks through the house and we see her kind of, I guess, round the hilltop, ready to go to the front door. But she sees Julia standing in the doorway and inviting some strange guy into the house. So, of course, we know what Kirsty is probably thinking, which is, uh-oh, she's having an affair. So after Julia goes inside with this strange man, she enters the house to investigate. And as she is Looking around, she gets upstairs where she hears noises and has a confrontation with Frank. Yeah, at this point, Frank has burrowed his fingertips into the neck of this man and is kind of like slurping the blood out like a straw, like through his fingers. It's a little gross. Well, this guy, the guy's not dead. He's still alive. And he kind of uses this guy to try to like hook Kirsty into the room, but it doesn't work. He ends up restraining Kirsty and it says a bunch of gross stuff like, come to daddy. Oh my, how yeah. you've grown. You look beautiful. And, you know, she's like, what? And he's like, it's your uncle Frank. It's- but you could tell that he wants to seduce her. And he says something like, some things have to be endured. And that's what makes the pleasure so sweet. Mm, really fucked up yeah he keeps trying to restrain her keeps trying to like push her against a wall but Kirsty eventually grabs the box to defend herself and frank freezes and is like no don't touch that and uh-huh. this does to Kirsty, i'm gonna touch this and <laughs> she runs away she runs down the stairs gets the box and runs off but the further she gets with the box she's feeling sick disoriented dizzy there's a lot of distorted noises and she ends up passing out and waking up in the hospital yeah and as she's in the hospital she is not treated very nicely by medical staff (laughs) the doctor seems to be very i guess suspicious of her And after he kind of questions her and she doesn't, she's not really able to answer or give the answer that this doctor is looking for, he leaves and locks her in the room. So she's locked in that room alone with the box. And so she starts messing around with the box and she ends up, like we saw towards the beginning of the movie, solving some sort of puzzle within the box. And what I gather is there's a lot of different ways that the pieces can be put together in the box. So in the specific way that she does it, a literal tunnel opens up in her hospital room. So I guess there's like a parallel universe and this box is able to like merge the universes. So she sees this tunnel and she goes in the tunnel like a dumb idiot. (laughs) Can I also say that like, Usually when the box opens up, there's like this like blue electricity effect. But in this case, it's lulling her to open the box because it starts out with like a little bit of fairy tale music. And then instead of like the blue lightning, it's pink sperm that float out of this box. They are little spermy little boys just 
emanating out of the top of this box. And I'm like, how appropriate. But of course, the music gets distorted. And like Elise said, the portal opens up and she hears the baby crying. And oh, yeah, that kind of beckons her. Because yeah, otherwise you're like, why would you go in? But she hears this baby crying. So again, we don't know if she's lost a baby. If this again has something to do with her dead mom. She does go through the tunnel, is trying to follow the noise, and she sees a monster at the end of the corridor. And this monster looks very weird. It almost looks like it is a big comma. That's the only way I can think about it. (laughs) Like, hear me out. Hear me out. The top of the monster is just like a pointed head. And it's got arms that are pushing itself against the walls on a cart. And the actual face and body of the monster are on the bottom in like this big worm-like structure. And it's just Mm -hmm. like these big chompers on the front. So you have this head that can't see anything, but the Mm -hmm. arms are at its tail pushing it while the mouth of it is like at the bottom of the comma worm structure and is chasing Kirstie down the hallway and kind of like nipping at her feet. Very scary, very uneasy. And I've said this a little bit, or I hinted at it previous, but like there is very little that is CGI in this movie. And it's obvious. Like you can tell every single makeup effect, like every single monster is actual practical effects. And it's awesome. Do they look silly sometimes? Obviously in a 2020, like in the 2020s, it looks a little weird. Yeah. But is it awesome? Because you can tell that like Kirstie and like the actors are actually physically interacting with all of these people. Amazing. I love it. It kind of makes me wonder, you know, because I guess that comma scorpion tail creature is meant to be a Cenobite, but if all of the Cenobites that we meet are meant to sort of merge together pain and pleasure, I'm wondering kind of what this much more abstract Cenobite is meant to represent. Yeah, because I did try to find the name of it to be like, oh, like what's the Cenobite called? Because I wanted to call it something. But either way, she's chased back into the hospital room and this is where the other Cenobites appear. So this is our first introduction to the Chatterer. But the chatter, I think, is the most hard to look at. It is human in all aspects, except that its face does not have any eyes or nose. It just has a protruding mouth where the teeth are just consistently chattering. And again, is in like the leather daddy outfit. And the chatterer corners Kiersey in a room and sticks its fingers in her mouth to restrain her and like pull her around. And I did read that Ashley Lawrence who plays Kirstie, this was like her first like breakout role. A lot of the people that were in the Cenobite makeup, they couldn't see very well. So when he stuck the fingers in her mouth, it scraped her palate really bad. So like the inside of her mouth was like bleeding and and shit like that. And she got like hurt from him, like sticking the fingers in her mouth. And I'm like, oh, like that's already like disgusting in itself. And the fact that like she got hurt doing that scene is like, that sucks. Yeah. And and just like a quick note, when she does leave that like hallway, she runs out with enough time to fuck with the box Mm. to shut the portal. And I think that's when she realizes that if she fucks with the box, she can like stop things that have happened. But because she does that, 
she summons the other Cenobite. She like right. ends one puzzle, opens another. And I said that <laughs> she summons the three stooges. <laughs> I guess it is three because is Butterball in that scene? You know what? I I don't think so. Maybe he is. And I just, I wrote this down before I realized he was there. I would say it's only three of them that play a pivotal role. The main cast of Cenobites being Pinhead, the Lady Cenobite, the Chatterer, and then Butterball, which is just a large, grotesque... What does he look like? He kind of reminds me of Jabba the Hutt, but like mm. a human, and his eyes are sewn shut. And But he wears sunglasses, like circular kind of cool sunglasses. To- like Harry Potter sunglasses, almost. Yeah, but sunglasses. Yeah. It's like, like the Harry Potter circles, but they're shaded. He kind of looks like a, I could see him being like a cool DJ at like a club. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of has that like cool look. I guess it's the leather and the shades. I don't know. He doesn't do too much. He just kind of shows up. He is not the main character. This is where we have the main character kind of talking. So you get a lot of awesome lines from Pidhead. Kiersey's like, who are you people? And Pinhead says, explorers to the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. And it's like, ooh, I'm kind of turned on hearing that. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) Explorers to the further regions of experience? Wow. Yeah, that's one hell of a line for sure. And this is where like this intelligence really comes in. Like Mm. he's really crafty with his words. He's intimidating. You can't just like fool him by like pulling something like you would pull on Jason Voorhees, where if you just like throw something in the other direction and make a noise, he'll stop <laughs> off and be like, ooh, like, like that's not how it works. Like you can't fuck with Pinhead. Kirsty still tries to strike a deal. She realizes that she's fucked because she summoned these Cenobites, but she rats out her uncle, Frank, and says, Frank has escaped your realm. He's alive. I know where he is. I will take you to him if you leave me alone. Yes. And they don't seem so inclined, but I think there's like a pride thing that they don't want to say that anyone has escaped them. So they strike the deal. But Pinhead says, if you cheat us, we will tear your soul apart, which holy shit. I just love the metal line delivery of this movie. Like it's all (laughs) just so hardcore. (laughs) So then we're tossed into a scene where Julia and Frank are rehashing the Kiersey situation. They're like, Kiersey's going to tell somebody, what the fuck do we do? Blah, 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 blah. But in this, again, fucking Larry, interrupting everything, comes home, and they give a knowing look to one another, and this is where Julia concedes where she is going to sacrifice Larry to Frank. But we don't see it happen. Instead, we see Larry come up the stairs at Julia's request, And then we see what we think is Frank and Julia fucking really hard on Larry and Julia's bed, but he doesn't look like Frank. No, he looks like his brother. He looks like his brother. mm -hmm. So he finally got his skin and I guess he had to take it from somebody, which is gross. And he took Larry's skin. So now the actor that has been playing Larry this entire time is now Frank. All in time for Kirsty to bust out of the hospital and frantically run home to warn her dad about what's going on. Kirsty arrives. Julia answers the door. Kirsty's like, I want to see my dad. And Julia's like, all right, cool. And 
takes Kiersey upstairs where Kiersey embraces Larry, but you see that along the edges of Harry's hairline, Harry's <laughs> along the <laughs> along the edges of Larry's hairline, there is a bunch of like blood and tissue. So you can tell that this is Frank and not Larry, but Kirsty doesn't know that. Kirsty tries red to- flags. Nope, not at all. Like, Dad, you seem damp. Or like, Dad, are, is your head wound okay? Like, <laughs> he's not looking good. <laughs> and at some point, I guess to sort of alleviate Kirsty's worries, they try to swap it out as if Larry killed Frank because. Frank is wearing Larry's skin. There's a skinless body on the floor in the attic upstairs. They show it to Kirstie and say, see, here is your uncle Frank. He's dead. I killed him. It's okay. She does believe it. Until Julia locks Kirstie in the room with said body and the Cenobites reappear. Mm -hmm. So the Cenobites reappear and Kirstie leaves the room in fear Julia tries to restrain Kiersey on the stairs. Kiersey runs and is trying to be like, no, this is not right. We have to leave. And then Larry says, come to daddy. And Kiersey realizes, oh no, that is Frank. My dad is dead. So at this point, Julia gets Kiersey again, is restraining her as Frank Larry. I guess I'll just keep calling him Frank, even though he's in Larry's body. Yeah. That Frank advances at Kiersey with the knife. Frank's about to stab, but Kiersey is able to wriggle away. And instead, Frank stabs Julia in the mm-hmm. gut. Julia is very upset. She's like, no, not me. But you could tell that Frank's a piece of shit because he's like, well, nothing personal, baby. And kills Julia. Mm-hmm. The ultimate penetration. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Fucked her everywhere, I guess. Kirsty is, while Frank is occupied killing and sucking, I guess, the life out of Julia, she hides in a room upstairs that I guess had been used for storage. And this is like, it reminds me of like half of like a final girl circuit or something, because while Frank is in the room searching for her, she's trying to like wriggle her way behind some boxes to stay out of his sight line. And she finds, I think, the first dead body of the first guy that Julia brought home for Frank. And I (laughs) screamed. I screamed so fucking loud. It was so scary. But she didn't. She kept her mouth shut, which I was so impressed by. That was like one of the the most like jarring parts of the whole movie. But then Frank leaves the room and Julia, I guess, leaves the room also and starts crying really fucking loud at the top of the steps. Like, what the hell? Just when like she got some of my mad respect for keeping her chill about that dead body. She can't she can't keep it together at the top of the steps. So Frank pops out of the attic, the iconic attic room, and I guess drags her back into the attic, right? Yeah. So in the room, he says something along the lines of, I'm sorry I had to kill your daddy, but you're all Uncle Frank's now. He calls himself Uncle Frank. And this is what the Cenobites need to hear. So the Cenobites, again, reappear in the room, chains without... It becomes that little like hanging chain fish hook chamber again. They restrain Frank, who's trying to go after Julia for like setting him up. And Pinhead tries to say, Kirsty, this isn't for your eyes. Like, go away. But instead, she like stands and watches as Frank in Larry's body is being pulled apart in every direction from these chains. They're in his face and it looks like he's like smiling in a weird way. 
even in death, he's still wagging his tongue at Kiersey like a gross. And he's pulled apart, presumably, and killed after saying Jesus wept, which apparently was ad-libbed by the actor. Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't know. Interesting to compare himself to like a Jesus figure, which he did come back from the dead. He was resurrected. Even when he was saying to Julia for the first time, he said, please, God, help me. So it's Mm. like one of those like weird things Mm. that he still like. I guess in that dire need, like still Mm -hmm. is calling for God or godliness, even though he wants to like be part of this like demon sexual power or whatever. But Kiersey's not done yet. No. And I don't know if it's because the Cenobites were never going to let her go or if it's because she stayed and watched Mm -hmm. and made what was going on her business that after Frank is pulled apart, they turn their sights to her. But she grabs the box And in a very timing-wise and possible scene, is able to kind of put the puzzles back so that each of the Cenobites disappears. But the house is starting to collapse, right? There's a lot of, like, weird, crazy shit going on in the house. It starts to collapse. Steve arrives. He makes his way into the house. (laughs) Fucking Steve showing up for (laughs) no damn reason. (laughs) Like, goddamn. He's with her now, and right when we think she's in the clear and things start to settle down, Steve goes to open the door. Kirsty cries, no! And again, we see the comma, the comma Cenobite <laughs> running its weirdness full force right at Kirsty and Steve, and she's able to solve the last puzzle, or I guess unsolve the last puzzle, and make that Cenobite disappear as well. I love that, like, in that moment, Steve tries to be a hero and grab the box and Kiersey smacks his hand away yes. and is like, bitch, no, I got this. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, I laughed so hard at that because he could tell he wants to save her so bad and get some, like, hero sex later. But no, mm-hmm. absolutely not. Kiersey's like, a good moment. get the fuck off me. I got four of them in here. I can get a fifth one. And honestly, probably my favorite moment of Kiersey's. Like, in that moment, I was like, yes, girl. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. But um, the house burns down. I guess we cut to another scene where like we're looking at remnants of the house on fire and Steve and Kirstie are kind of standing there watching. Yeah, it's like a right? time lapse. Like it's the it's house is gone now and it's just debris. Yeah, it's weird. It doesn't look like it is where the house would have been. No, it looks like it's in like an abandoned field on like so, the side of a highway. It's a, definitely a separate location, but yeah. maybe this is part of the very low budgetness of this movie. Maybe. Like they only got clearance to use this field and nowhere else for the fire. No, it's like, (laughs) we actually can't burn this house down, guys. Okay. (laughs) We actually, we actually can't burn this house down, even though we're going to make fun of it and make it seem like it burned down. We actually, so we're going to put you on the side of the highway. Okay. um, (laughs) That's literally, that must have been what happened. And just light six separate piles of trash on fire and make it look like it's remnants of a whole ass house with belongings and furniture in it. But just, just believe me. And that, that will all happen in 30 seconds. So They're standing there kind of watching the last of the house burn and they see creepy man walking into frame and he picks up the box from the fire that Kirsty had just thrown in there to try to end it all. He picks it up and he turns into a big dragon. (laughs) I laughed so hard at this where it's just like, first of all, my Hagrid comparison is so on point at this point because he's like the keeper of fucking dragons. And then because I was trying so hard to be like, what are you? 
Like, I understand if you're like a Cenobite or something, but like, why are you eating crickets? Because I feel like dragons need a little more protein than crickets. But then he turns into a skeleton dragon. He's not a dragon with meat on his bones. He's just a skeleton dragon. And it looks so fucking weird. (laughs) And it just flies off into the night. And the movie ends with the box finding a new owner from the very same storefront that Frank bought the box in. So how did the box make its way back to the Wikipedia said they were in Morocco. So like how they make it back to Morocco. Did he just like fly straight there? Is this dragon employed by the box to make sure it gets like opened every now and Mm. again? So the the box's keeper come out to play. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sure this guy probably comes back in sequels. I have not done my due diligence to do all my research on the rest of the films, but I know Kiersey does make a couple more appearances at least. But yeah, that's Hellraiser. I mentioned before how this movie is queer coded in certain ways, and it definitely is. And not in the instance that there's overt gayness in the movie, because all of the scenes that we see are of the heterosexual persuasion, but also thinking about like what could be on screen at that time and how were they trying to, you know, implore some of these themes, because obviously Clive Barker had these things in mind. So I read an article about the power of difference in Hellraiser's queerness by Mary Beth McAndrews, and she writes, Beyond the Cenobites, Hellraiser also focuses on deviant sexualities that function outside of what is considered quote-unquote normal. This is not just about the queer coding of the Cenobites, but of the possibility of non-heteronormative sex. While the only sex scenes shown in the film are between a man and a woman, Frank represents sexual deviancy in his appetites and cravings for something more than just a missionary position in a dark room. In the original cut of the movie, Barker included a sodomy scene between Frank and Julia. However, that scene was seen as too perverse for studios. Instead, the film intercuts between Frank and Julia's sex scene and the mangling of Larry's hand. This showcases the fear of non-normative sexuality and illustrates how cisgender, heterosexual, patriarchal power deems certain sex acts worse than violence. Queerness is deemed more dangerous. So in that scene that was supposed to be in the movie of Julia and Frank having anal sex, obviously that could have been queer coded in the sense that Perhaps putting Frank with a man wasn't going to be allowed, but by putting anal sex, which isn't exclusive to LGBTQ circles, but I would say is far more frequent in LGBTQ circles than straight circles. Like that could have kind of been their way of being like, hey, like we're out here. And a lot of kink circles and BDSM circles have very, very strong roots and ties in the queer community. Like that, I don't think necessarily needs to be contested. They're certainly not the only participants. But I think the idea that like when you're talking about the 70s and the early 80s, the queerness and any kind of queerness is being seen as sexually deviant. It kind of drove that population of especially gay men, especially Clive Barker, even saying that he participated in these sex clubs and stuff like that to find spaces for community. And then it led for more active experimentation between those folks in those spaces to push what deviant sexuality could actually look like. So I just found that interesting, especially when it's intercut with, you know, this nail entering Larry's hand, like injuring his hand, puncturing his hand, fucking his hand. I don't know. Like... 
Well, as his brother is screwing his wife, he's penetrated by this nail. Like he's injured. I think that aligns as well. I guess I feel kind of, even like the straight sex we saw, I feel, I felt kind of disappointed, I guess, with like the SNM that was in this movie. I felt like it showcased penetration as the end all be all. Mm-hmm. And like, that's nothing new. But I guess, you know, just thinking about like, yes, he does cut off her lingerie or cut her lingerie strap with a knife. And yes, he does put her whole like chin in his mouth. I don't know if that was on purpose, but when he tries to make out with her, it just feels like Julia's body is there's so much else that could have been done there. I think to showcase like this idea of pleasure and eroticism that it just kind of like fell back on the, I think, overused trope that. It's all about penetration. And that's not just in horror. That's in like just Hollywood in general. I wish that there was just something else. And I guess I'd be interesting to see like what the more recent Hellraiser movies are like to see like maybe without the confines of 1980s Hollywood, like what could be showcased. But that was just kind of like my impression. Yeah. I I was about to say, I do know that this movie got cut down a fuck ton by Mm. like MPAA stuff. Like, cause obviously like it's still pretty long. Yeah. I mean like, like for its time, it's certainly racy, like in terms of like, yeah, the sex and the things that we do see is pretty in the gore, obviously that we do Mm. see is still pretty in your face, but I wonder what the director's cut of this movie would look like in a 20 in 2021 like i feel like especially for a movie that did commercially very well and the only way it could do commercially very well like i'm pretty sure it had a budget of like 1 million and made back at least 20 million which wow, is like nice. great so i think clive barker probably had to make the choice of do i make the film i want to make or do i make the film mm. that i want the most people to see that i still made you know what i mean like i would that can think- still convey central parts of what i want and I, and I do think the sequels explore a lot more diversity and like experience. I would hope they do. Cause if it's just this yeah. over and over again, like I would be disappointed too. On like creating films about sex, Barker said, sex is a great leveler. It made me want to tell a story about the good and evil in which sexuality was the connective tissue. I was trying to validate a lifestyle. It was a celebration of the beauty of these strange secret rituals. So I think, again, for him, it was like, hey, this entire underground population of people that exist in these relationships or that have these kind of sex like exist. And I want to make it camp and create a conversation about it. And like, obviously, I don't think very much to how in the 2010s, the whole Fifty Shades of Grey is not Dom and Sub hellraiser is not bdsm like it's it's the same Mm -hmm. thing like they're inspired by like real ways of life and actual legitimate ways that you can practice sex or relationship dynamics and obviously this is a horror film so it's meant to like exaggerate and exploit in a different way but i mean i liked it i liked the movie a lot at first i hated it But like I said, and I told Shay before we started recording, I was like, I have been thinking about this movie for the last 48 hours. Like I woke up yesterday and today thinking about this movie. I like fell asleep thinking about this movie. Like there's so much about it that just, there's just a lot of things to think about. And it kind of reminds you of Suspiria Mm -hmm. in that way that you can tell that it really is meant, I think, more to be like artistic, which is why I think even though I have some beef with some of the like mythology or the mythos or whatever behind the story I kind of accept the gray area at least this time around because I know that there are like other things to be paying attention to 
But I liked that. It, it did feel very artistic. My last comment is it really does focus more so on the horror. And I guess I just wish that there was more of like the balance between that pleasure aspect and pain because there was a lot of pain and like the effects were so cool. And I think that the decisions they made to focus on those effects were really, really neat. And it really, I think, succeeded in that horror area. But I am curious about the other Hellraiser movies. And originally I didn't think I would watch them after I saw this one, but now I feel like I almost have to because I want to see where it goes and what's added because there are things that like I want to see. And I also feel like the more I think about this and after our conversation, the more I like it and would recommend it to others. And I will say too, that in the sex scenes that we do see, we really are focused on Julia's pleasure and her happy reminiscings of those experiences and not Frank's dominance of those experiences. Like she enjoys the dominance of that experience, but I think that there's a way to shoot or like, get across that Julia was a prey for Frank. But I think something that they did really well is by being that like Julia wanted to be taken in that way. And not in the Mm -hmm. sense that like she had it coming or whatever like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. But like she consented to everything Mm -hmm. that happened in their affair. And she made an active decision to continue making those decisions for her sexual benefit. Every decision she was making was for her agency. But my initial thought was, if you don't want to fuck with Frank, when he's in the attic, barely an exoskeleton, you can take an ax to that motherfucker and he'd be dead. <laughs> like, there's, yeah, sure, Frank grabbed at her, but Frank wasn't overpowering anybody until body number three. You know what I mean? Like he was in a very vulnerable, very, you know, needs a million tetanus shots. You could have have killed the man with a rusty nail for like the majority of of salt. Yeah, (laughs) of salt would have taken this guy down. But like, while Frank is a piece of shit, it was being manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to see Julia as a victim. I truly, I don't, I truly think that she was in the driver's seat this entire movie and obviously there's complexity to it but like she wanted that experience again and she wanted sex and she wanted to be with somebody who would treat her the way that she wanted to be treated in the mm-hmm. bedroom and it just obviously got out of control but like yeah i, I think I she appreciate comes that. i think she comes back in other movies right i think at least the second one i kind of like that I was really sad when she went. I didn't think she would. I thought Kirstie was going to go, but Kirstie lived and Julia died. And I was sad. (laughs) Yeah, because I think Julia dying really did put a nail on the side of she was abused or she was manipulated. And it did take away her agency by Frank killing her in the end, because it's really easy to retroactively read Julia's character then as a battered woman who was manipulated into doing things she wasn't comfortable with. But like, that's not how the movie wants you to see her. I don't Mm -hmm. think, you know, no, I don't think so either. Maybe if I like watched it again and like, didn't think so much about like the fact that like a a half human muscle blob was trying to seduce her, maybe I would feel like a little bit better. I think I just had a hard time. Like, like hearing what you're saying, yes, there are definitely those pleasure elements there. I think that the first time around, there was just so much that was like shocking and confusing that maybe I just didn't like realize or appreciate those moments as much as I could again, or maybe I do now. But still, fucking weird, but fucking lots to talk about. 
lots to, there's so much there. (laughs) Yeah. I honestly like not necessarily next, but like, I do want to like revisit this franchise. And what I'll end it on is they are actually doing a reboot of this as a Hulu exclusive and and Pinhead will actually be played by a woman. (gasps) And it's going to up the queerness because the Hellraiser reboot will feature a woman in the role of Pinhead, trans actress Jamie Clayton, who is known for her roles in Sense8 and The L Word. She's an amazing actress. I loved Sense8. I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but like it is an amazing show. You know, she's a trans actress playing a trans character in that. Mm-hmm. And they don't make it a whole coming out storyline or like a, <laughs> yeah. like a sad queer storyline. Like I just loved her work and I loved her in that. And like after seeing her face, like she just has the face for Pinhead. And like, I just want to know like how they're going to just revitalize the movie and if they're going to really play into a more queer angle or whether they're just making Pinhead a woman. But like, I'm excited. I want to see I want to see do. that. Mm-hmm. I want to see that. Definitely. Well, there you have it, folks. That's Hellraiser. One of the best titles of a movie I think we've covered. I yeah. love that. I was about to say, otherwise known as What Women Will Do for a Good Fuck. Oh. <laughs> on that note, if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at The Horrors Podcast. And you can also email us at that address if you're interested in getting in touch. The Horrors Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. If you have any movies you want us to cover, there's anything out that you want us to talk about, feel free to send it our way. We are just flying by the seat of our pants as we always (laughs) do in terms of schedules. At this point, every episode is a surprise and we're just going to be happy that you're happy to listen to us. We'll let you know what we have in the works when we know. Yay! Okay. Thanks for listening, y'all. Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.